Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Professor Maya Goldenberg, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Guelph. Welcome, Maya. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, it's great. So I want to start, uh, I'd like to start by asking our guests a bit about their intellectual background, where they studied, how they got to where they are today. So you're a philosopher. Have you always been interested in philosophy? It started as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto. I entered University of Toronto to study basic medical sciences. It took me about six weeks to figure out that wasn't my path. And I switched to a philosophy course, science and ethics course, and I was completely enchanted by the line of questioning, the critical look at science, thinking about it not just epistemically, but politically and socially as well. And I never looked back. I studied bioethics all the way through my undergraduate. I did a master's at McGill, a PhD at Michigan State University. And now I'm lucky to be employed as a full-time philosopher at the University of Guelph. I've always argued that the best gig in human history is being a professor of philosophy. You get paid to think. It's wonderful. So I'm thrilled for you. So obviously that sec, that course in uh, ethics and science, was it the professor or was it the material or is it a combination of both? It was probably a combination of the both. I remember writing a research paper on the bell curve, mm. which was still sort of contemporary at the time. And I think I was struck by how so many complex factors go into the story of science and racism and political hierarchy. And that's an ethics, of course. And I kept going from there. And I still work in that intersection of science and values. I still do that today. Yeah, it's fabulous. So tell me a little bit about your doctoral work. And then you came to the University of Toronto and did a postdoc before you went to Guelph. And uh, tell me a bit about the evolution of your thinking in those spheres, and then we'll move to where you're working on now. Okay. I wrote my dissertation on the epistemic and ethical issues in evidence-based medicine. I remember that I'd been employed as a research assistant for the clinical ethicist at the Hospital for Sick Children one summer. I used to come back to Toronto, mm-hmm. which is where I'm from, and work around the Joint Center for Bioethics at U of T. And I was doing some work for Christine Harrison on yeah. the ethics of complementary and alternative medicine. And I found myself, a lot of the research at the time was juxtaposing CAM versus this thing called evidence-based medicine. And I'd never heard this term, evidence-based medicine, before which I realized very quickly said something about my training in bioethics and philosophical bioethics is that it wasn't very up-to-date with what was actually happening in the medical field. We were still talking about biomedicine in the sense of the 1970s version of that. So I started learning about evidence-based medicine, and it struck me right away that, first of all, this was big, this was all over the literature, and it had salient philosophical issues, for sure, and problems with the way it was being constructed that I felt like it it deserved attention from philosophers. So I started working on that. And interestingly, I met a few doctoral students at other universities who were also coming to that area. It was sort of uh, emerging in philosophy. There were a few people within 
academic medicine who'd been thinking about some of the problems with evidence-based medicine. Hmm. One of them was you. But in terms of philosophers getting wind of the ethics and epistemology of evidence-based medicine, I was among the first people to be doing that. Yeah, I think that's where our paths first crossed because there was you and Robin Bloom and Kirsten Borgerson. And I was so thrilled because I was stumbling around, you know, I'm kind of an ex-philosopher and I was thinking, when's the cavalry of really well-trained, rigorous philosophers going to come over the hill and start grappling with these issues? And I think the three of you have made absolutely seminal, substantial contributions. And you've taken a kind of feminist approach to the critique. Do you want to explain a little bit about that for our listeners? It seems like Philosophy of medicine and feminist philosophy have some things in common. One is the intersection of epistemology and ethics, the recognition that knowledge claims have normative and ethical implications. So all three of us were trained in feminist philosophy where we didn't separate the ethics and the epistemology in a very uh, rigid way. And it seems like the philosophy of medicine that has grown in maybe last decade and a half, two decades, have similarly done that. So right away, I think we were well positioned to appreciate those intersections. And also, feminist philosophy of science in particular have been very good in the study of science and values, often taking a social epistemology approach. And that's been useful for thinking about medicine, which has a cultural context that needs to be appreciated. Yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there. So I spent some time over the summer looking at Helen Longino and Heather Douglas and trying to conceptualize uh, using that framework to kind of hedge against some of the really archly critical stuff like Jacob Stegegna's medical nihilism, which I think goes, it's a very useful critique, but I think it takes the pendulum a little bit too far. I think a lot of feminist philosophy of science is incredibly respectful of that intersection between epistemology and ethics that gives us a useful lens to be constructive uh, about rebuilding how we could think about medical thinking. I agree. So since that time, you've now expanded your research interests into really, uh, I'd say, issues of fundamental importance in public policy, and particularly public health policy. So you've been doing some thinking and research around vaccine hesitancy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that work and how you got there? Well, I'll start with giving you the link between working on epistemology of evidence-based medicine and getting how I found myself working on vaccine hesitancy. Both begin with fundamental epistemic question how do we know what to believe? So when you're looking at evidence-based medicine, you start asking questions like, why are randomized controlled trials considered the gold standard? What are other competing warrants for uh, rational decision-making? I got interested in vaccine hesitancy. I think it was when Brian Deere published his investigative report on Andrew Wakefield. He did Uh, a three-part investigation. This was when Wakefield, who's still seen as a sort of originator of the contemporary vaccine resistance movement. There have been other resistance. Mm. This is the most current one. He exposed him for fraud, for fabricating his data. And I remember reading that expose because it was so juicy and exciting. And probably like many other people, especially people in public health, expected 
that there would be a sea change in public opinion about vaccines. And it didn't take long to see that that wasn't going to happen, mm. that public resistance to scientific claims was still there. And like many people, and I guess as an epistemologist, I looked at that question and I thought, well, what's it going to take? What evidence is it going to take to get those people, these doubting members of the public, to finally get on board with vaccines? And it was really just a sort of side interest. A little bit of reading made me realize that that wasn't the right question, that this wasn't a question about what is that piece of evidence, what is that study that's going to show everyone. But it was a much broader question about ideological commitments and the way people see science as part of our social fabric. Instead, it actually spoke much more to social values and actually mistrust of scientific institutions. So the fact that evidence is being ignored, and, and there sure is a lot of evidence telling us that vaccines are safe and effective, at least childhood vaccines. I, I limit my research to childhood vaccinations. The evidence is not going to change people's mind because that's actually not what the debate hinges on. Even though the debates are framed as scientific debates, you show me this paper and I show you this paper and, and question your source and you question my source, it's actually not a debate about the science at all. It's so, more about the status of science. Yeah. So what has your analysis about that situation revealed? How would you size up the setting about what it is about, about social uh, forces, about trust in science? My takeaway is that public resistance to scientific claims, and this does, isn't unique to vaccines, are actually symptoms of public mistrust in the scientific consensus the scientific consensus and the institutions that underwrite the consensus. So against the dominant framing of vaccine resistance as a sign of scientific illiteracy among the general public, I don't think it's the scientific literacy that's the piece. I think it's poor trust in the institutions that are providing the evidence. And that's why no matter how many studies you show, if you don't trust the source, you're not going to trust the evidence either. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I think trust is one of the underappreciated ethical concepts in contemporary healthcare. And I was struck about 10 years ago, I was still working on pandemic influenza issues, but I'd completed four studies, empirical studies, in four very divergent fields. And they were all qualitative studies. And the key theme in each of those studies, one was about managing anticoagulation in primary care. One was about genetic information. One was about pandemic response. And one was about vaccinations. And the key theme was about trust. And the way that it parsed out, and I started thinking, I don't really know a lot about trust. So I started to read some, you know, Annette Beyer and then I thought, well, that's kind of getting us some ways. But this is really uh, a social phenomenon. Absolutely fascinating. If you have trust, you can do a lot of things unproblematically. When you have pervasive distrust, you're in trouble. So in your thinking about this problem, do you have any ideas about how to address, build, reconstruct, or move towards a more trustworthy scientific set of institutions? It's worth recognizing that trust and distrust travels. So if you're trusted in one area, it can move to others. There's a lot of disparaging of the arguments that anti-vaxxers are 
buying into conspiracy theories about big pharma. And I've seen a number of sort of responses to that. One is that first that it's a conspiracy theory, which I highly doubt. The second, that big pharma, pharmaceuticals and vaccines are somehow different, that one is big business and the other one isn't. That's also false, but besides the point. The point is that there's a history that our medical institutions need to reconcile, a history of poor treatment of people, conflicts of interest, and serious cases of scientific misconduct that come up in the news once in a while. It may not mean that all of science is untrustworthy, but members of the public are not in a position to know when the science is trustworthy and when it isn't. The relation of members of the public to scientific consensus statements, to guidelines and such, is that we're largely unable to see how those guidelines were determined and how those conclusions were reached. So it puts members of the public in this position of what's called epistemic dependence. You just have to kind of trust because you can get in there and read some of the papers, but you're never going to have the insider view, whether the directives you're being given are legitimate. So that's something that public health, for example, need to understand is that part of their mandate is not only to provide the best science, but also to earn the trust of the public. And that might involve things like, first of all, not disparaging the publics when they ask questions about, say, vaccines. And also, if the public indicate that they're unhappy with, let's say, the close financial ties of academia and industry, that's a good reason to actually regulate and get a grip on that instead of trying to say, there's nothing there, you've got nothing to worry about. In a current project you're working on, you've been doing some deliberative dialogues and engagement with the public about vaccine hesitancy. You want to tell us a little bit about that work? It sounds like some of the findings that you've just articulated came from that, but I'm sure you're finding some other interesting things as well. So you're referring to a public deliberation that I helped organize a few months ago. So we brought in 25 members of the public. They were picked. They were sort of a cross-section of people from Ontario that were willing to come to Waterloo for two weekends. So that already selects quite a bit. And we had group discussions and deliberation about vaccines and vaccine policy. And people appreciated being able to speak openly in a non-judgmental way, to hear other points of view, and to think about the issue. Many of the people that were there were not people with young children, so that was already a, a sort of a limit to our the study. So they people uh, who were generally older, their children were grown up, and they said, you know, I never really get to talk to people about vaccines, so it's been hard for me to sort of figure out how I feel about it. And I I mentioned that only because the group that I focus on, the, the age category that I focus on, are parents with young children who talk about vaccines all the time and do research online and discuss among each other. But the point was the, the ability to converse about it and to ask questions openly was helpful. So what could that translate into in terms of practice is patients need to be able to talk to their physicians or nurse practitioners about that. And I know as soon as I say this, physicians are going to say, where are we going to have where are we going to find the time to do that? We don't have time to talk for an hour to build trust with our patients. I'll agree that the way things are currently structured, physicians don't have the time to do that. But 
this is a good time to actually create structures where patients can talk to their physicians. There's actually a fair bit of research that's shown that although a lot of members of the public have less than optimal trust in scientific institutions, they do trust their physicians very much. And that's got something to do with the relationship. That actually fits with the all the literature and the research on trust, that trust is built in relationships. So the fact that you don't trust an institution, that's one thing, but you often trust the person that you deal with day to day, like your physician, because you know them and you think they have your best interest at heart. So I would say open up spaces where patients can have these non-judgmental conversations with their physicians. And physicians need time to do that because the trust is so key. If you just come in there and say, well, I'm not so sure, and your physician says, that's nonsense, that's not going to result in, in a good outcome. And there's actually even literature supporting that too, that a lot of the people that end up hesitating, end up not vaccinating their children, will recount stories of feeling disparaged and not listened to by their primary healthcare practitioner. Yeah, and even if it's not stated, they often read the body language of impatients, and uh, that's a, another form of disparagement. That's right. It's fascinating because in our work with complex patient populations who require a lot of time to unpack the multiplicity of issues that they are burdened with, the hardest problem we've had is trying to convince the way the system is organized that it's contingent. There is nothing written in the eternal laws of the universe that we need to structure healthcare such that healthcare practitioners do not have time. Volume-driven practice is a contingency. There's lots of ways we could think of structuring and organizing a practice to be able to have that kind of trust-building time with patients. You could do it in groups, for example, because the issues are generic. You end up giving the same conversation about vaccines to 50 parents in your practice. Imagine if you invited them all and talked and listened to everybody's concerns in an open and frank way. So just before we conclude, as an epistemologist, somebody who spent decades now thinking about knowledge and what gives it its uh, credibility, what's a warranted, legitimate belief. Last year, we saw the coinage of the term alternative facts. And we're living in an area where I think there's actually distrust about not just scientific institutions, but the very notion of knowledge itself. Looking forward, how do you see your work trying to legitimate that there is something called knowledge, if that's one of your tasks? My task has been to tie knowledge claims to the issue of trust, that it's not, it's not secondary to the claim. It's not like there's a truth out there and the expert that wears the nicest tie gets to say it. Knowledge is generated often dialogically. You have to actually know what the stakeholders need to know. And uh, the stakeholders will often have criteria for what is the kind of information that they would find legitimate, that they would trust. And that, that usually says something about the procedure, not about the endpoint. It's a, you know, I don't get to say, I'll trust you if you tell me that vaccines are unsafe. Uh, I want to know how you got to that conclusion. And it's from there that I'm going to trust the source. The discussion now about alternative facts it's troubling for sure, but it actually speaks to the low level of trust that's out there. What were once seen as the rigorous sources of trustworthy knowledge, namely science, is being 
discredited because science is not outside of politics. It's actually embedded within political structures. So we need to make sure that science is, is embedded within the right political structures, first, so that the work that is produced will be trustworthy, and second, that it will be perceived as trustworthy by the stakeholders. It strikes me that one of the take-home messages for people involved in research and science-informed practice is that they need to spend equal amount of times in relationship building and trust building rather than just standing on their authority as and identity as scientists and science-using practitioners. Would that be a fair characterization? That's 100% right. Excellent. Maya, thank you so much. What a fabulously stimulating conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it, and thank you for taking time out of your uh, busy career and life to come and speak with us today. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Beautiful.